force. Yet pennies are spent on medical services to a population in which the indigenous, the poor and the mentally ill are overrepresented. Where isolation, humiliation and degradation are facts of life. Welcome to prison. It depends who's telling the story, I suppose. The prisoners would have one view. The people who work in the prison system would have another. And I think it's up to people to decide uh, you know, where, where the truth is. Give government propaganda and the media spin doctors the flick. And check out Doin' Time for news, views and tunes on prison issues from Guantanamo Bay to Christmas Island to prisons and detention centres everywhere. Every Monday at 4pm on your community radio, 3CR. We are still fired up and we're still talking about revolution. Hello and uh, welcome to Doing Time Show. Um, I'm Peter. Um, we'll be going till 5 o'clock. This is um, FreeCR 855 AM or Um if you want to listen to online. There's a podcast as well. Anyhow, we'll get to um, the show. Um, the first up, we'll have um, Mamiya Abdul-Jamal, um, some commentaries of him. Um, Mamiya was a um, black panther who, convict, who was convicted of murder, killing a, a police officer more than 30 years ago, and he maintains his innocence as he's been, he gained international um, attention. And lately, the judge has reinsta- judge of Philadelphia has reinstated um, appeals rights to for him. Um, advocates for Mamiya praised the decision by Philadelphia Common Pleas Judge Leon Tucker as a significant development towards winning the freedom of a, a man whose case generated de- de- decades of protests and thousands of supporters in the Free Mamiya movement. This is unheard of legal victory, said um, Rachel Wolfordstein, former lawyer of long-time activist Mamiya, Abu-Jamal. This is the best opportunity we have had for Mamiya's freedom in decades. So that that's the latest news on Mamiya. But these are a few commentaries. One's about Lynn Stewart as well. Um, Lynn Stewart was is a radical human rights attorney, attorney who had has developed her life to the oppressed and um, a constant advocate for countless many deprived in the US for their freedom and rights. Lynn was falsely accused of helping terrorists in an obvious attempt by the uh, US government to silence um, dissent and crucial vicious defence lawyers and um, install in the in those who would fight against the US government's racism seek to help Arabs and Muslims to being persecuted for um, arraignment before Manhattan federal court federal judge who was also persisted over her trial in 2004 so that she was convicted and received 28 months sentence in October 2006. However, she was freed on bail in 2009. But then um, I think she got out in 2009. She she got a 10-year sentence in 2009, but I think she got out. But then she passed away in um, November 13... December 13th, sorry, um, New Year's Eve. Um, the court, she died of a stroke. Oh, sorry. She was freed from prison in 2013. Sorry about that. 
And she died of the stroke in 2017, so it wasn't that long ago. So this that'll be a memorial, um, little bit of a commentary about um, her. And we'll go to the the next one. I'll talk about the next podcast um, later. Right, um, this is this will go for 25 minutes. All these podcasts. See you soon. Thanks, Ralph, for letting me talk about Lynn. This is Noelle Hanrahan. And I just have incredibly fond memories of Lynn. And the fact that she was such a righteous political compass. Like, when I needed to figure out something or think about a political struggle, if I would talk to Lynn about it, I could get this amazing, electric, defining information. And I was really... Welcome. You know, she didn't pull punches. And I really appreciated that about her. And she said what she thought. She did what she thought was right, no matter what. And as many people have said tonight, with incredible courage. And then I also really liked Lynn because she was super funny. She cooked a lot and she cooked really well. And there was this, like, je ne sais quoi about life. Like, she just had a real sense of enjoyment of life and that in, came through in every single thing she did. This one time, one of the first times I met her, I had her reading a piece by William O. Douglas that was about when night comes into darkness. And she was reading it off of a script that I had typed up. And I had typed William O. apostrophe Douglas. And she just started cracking up, and she said to me, Noel, William O. Douglas was not Irish. <laughs> and I was like, what? She says, it's William O. period Douglas. And I was like, I was like, oh, okay. So she just schooled me all the time in funny ways. There's one time I was trying to make a, um, I was trying to make whipped cream, and I was downstairs, and Ralph and Lynn were upstairs, and I had made dinner for everybody, and I wasn't coming back. I was trying to whip the cream for strawberries. And she finally shielded out, and she goes, Yo, tell Noelle she's never going to whip that cream because she had the person who went out to get her something to you, to make it, brought her back half and half, and it's never going to whip up. <laughs> like, the person I sent out to get whipping cream had brought back half and half. So... Yeah, every every day I think about Lynn. Every single day. And I I realized the other day that Lynn didn't know that I applied to go to law school the month that she passed. And so I applied to go to Rutgers in March of 2017. And so I got in August 1st, and I'm going to graduate in May. And the reason I went is because there are not enough lawyers for our people and Lynn was one of them that I truly admired. And so I'm just about to finish Rutgers, going to take the bar in July and try and continue her kind of lawyering, a kind that really respects people and believes in their self-determination and fights like hell to bring them home. Thank you so much for that, Noel. But let me warn you that when Lynn was in her prime doing her cases, she had a, over a hundred cases that were active. People would wait two years to go to trial and say to the judge, I'm waiting until Lynn is available. Be that kind of lawyer. We all need you. And we will look forward to uh, your installment as an attorney. Thank you again for that, Noel. Big trouble in big China. The novel coronavirus has brought the world's second biggest economy to a virtual standstill. That's because China is the workhouse of the West, where cars, computers, iPhones, clothes, and a wealth of other items gets constructed. China's labor force is the key to capitalist production of almost everything. And when it stops, as it has during the emergence of the coronavirus, Almost everything stops as it ripples through economies worldwide. 
The U.S. economy lost trillions in one week on the stock markets. After NAFTA in the 90s, U.S. corporations fled abroad in search of ever cheaper labor. Mexico, Vietnam, China. China has a vast labor force and did a slew of deals that resulted in factories sprouting like mushrooms in the dark. The emergence of the novel coronavirus shows how closely we all work together in this new neoliberal world. And guess what? It ain't over. From Imprisoned Nation, this is Mumia Abu Jamal. These commentaries are recorded by Noel Hanrahan of Prison Radio. Delbert Walks. For Delbert Africa, a member of the MOVE organization, his imprisonment for his membership in MOVE has led to what the late Nelson Mandela called a long walk to freedom. On August 8th, 1978, Delbert was beaten brutally, senseless. His jawbone was broken. To make matters worse and to add insult to injury, when several cops were prosecuted for this vicious, brutal beating of Delbert, a Philadelphia judge would willy-nilly dismiss everything, all of the charges, and he dismissed the jury, which was imported from a Pennsylvania county, one of the whitest rural counties in the state, and issue an acquittal despite videotape evidence. The judge, incredibly, writes an opinion that justifies Delbert's beating by citing to his muscularity, I kid you not, for Delbert was apparently well-built and the poor cops were frightened that he had so much musculature. Shortly after this beating occurred and was denied by police at a press conference later that day in City Hall. It was broadcast all across the city of Philadelphia. At a public meeting in Center City a few days later, a popular black politician, the late city councilman Lucian Blackwell, told a crowd of blacks that, this is a direct quote, Delbert Africa is one of the greatest black men who have ever lived. I'm told that Delbert's beating can be seen today on YouTube, so check it out. Today, Delbert Africa is free after 42 years in the joint. He is free to tell his own story now. From Imprisoned Nation, this is Mumia Abu Jamal. These commentaries are recorded by Noel Hanrahan of Prison Radio. My new message to No New Jail. I did a previous commentary about this organization called No New Jails NYC, which is a grassroots campaign committed to closing Rikers Island. Now, without building new jails and rerouting the $11 billion it would cost to construct four new jails in New York City towards community services and needs. When I first commented on no new jails, the only thing I knew about them is how they disrupted a New York City event during a presentation by the mayor's office of criminal justice. I was like, here we go again, another protest move with no real vision or plans for the future. I'm happy to say I was wrong. I have begun reading no new jails New York's Guide to Building Community Care and Safety by Closing Rikers with No New Jails. So far, I'm very impressed. The plan 
is practical and strategic. My only critique regards the bailout initiative, but I will address that in another commentary. Here, I want to discuss the overall aim of No New Jail's plan. It's quite ingenious and powerful. It exposes the insanity and illogic in New York City wanting to spend $11 billion to construct four new so-called humane jails to replace Rikers Island. How can any jail or prison be humane? And why not invest $11 billion in disadvantaged communities plagued by crime? Why not invest $11 billion into proven alternatives to incarceration and into proven crime-reducing measures like creating jobs and improving public education and community services? The answer to this question is simple. Investing $11 billion to reduce crime and to keep people out of jail means less jobs for police officers, correction guards, prosecutors, judges, and everyone else who benefits from the policing, prosecution, and punishment of crime. No new jail is on to something, but I call upon them to expand their vision to encompass closing down prisons and jails throughout the state by building a statewide grassroots movement exposing how incarceration harms and empowering the community inside and out to reduce crime and recidivism ourselves. My USD organization is an example of a community-based grassroots movement combating incarceration does to prisoners, especially young prisoners. Despite the hope USD gives to prisoners that they can change and better themselves, despite the way USD positively challenges prisoners to reevaluate their criminal colonial thinking that is the product of carceral corruption, the New York, Department, New York State Department of Corrections and Community Supervision is fighting to stop USD. No new jails should ally with USD and create an expanded vision for closing down prisons and jails in New York State. Let us work together to keep people out of prison, starting with creating in-prison community-backed rehabilitation programs. Volunteers from the community can come into New York State prisons to run such programs and link them with outside grassroots efforts. My hope is no new jails will heed my call. This is Dante S. Mitchell, better known as the Salmi Sakibu, reporting to you from Great Metal Corrections Facility in Comstock, New York. Follow me at Free Dante Mitchell on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Send me an email or videogram via jpay.com with any questions or comments. I love to struggle and hear with you. Thank you for listening, and God bless. These commentaries are recorded by Noel Hanrahan of Prison Radio. Several years ago, I read a masterful and remarkable book titled Mer and Ho by the acclaimed historian Robin Kelly. It's a fascinating history of black workers in the 1930s working in Alabama who tried to organize unions and get a few pennies more for their labor, often agricultural work. The landowners, angry that their labor wanted more pay, unleashed really terrorizing repression, state violence against these people, often accomplished with the open aid of groups like the Ku Klux Klan. I thought of that dismal history when I heard just recently, of cops beating, clubbing, and breaking bones of UCAL graduate students who are only striking to get the ability to pay their rent. This is especially problematic due to increasing high rents in California. Obviously, one can't equate the grotesque racist violence visited upon black workers during the 30s. Yet what unites these two periods is the presence of state violence against people truly trying to live better lives. In their case, trying to pay rent. A movement is growing in Cali. A movement that may grow to touch all of us. From Imprisoned Nation, this is Mumia Abu Jamal.
These commentaries are recorded by Noel Hanrahan of Prison Radio. Chuck Africa goes home. For over 40 years, Chucky Africa, of the famed Move 9, veteran of the Move confrontation of August 8, 1978, has been imprisoned in state joints across Pennsylvania, serving what is arguably an illegal sentence of 30 to 100 years for a third-degree murder conviction. Several days ago, he walked out of prison and went home. Chuck, the youngest of the Move 9, was one of the feistiest members. During the 80s, he was on the boxing team and went around the state trying guys' chins. He was a devastating puncher, in and out the ring. When he was at Dallas State Penitentiary, a white-shirted officer disrespected him, and Chuck knocked him out cold. Over the years, he spent time studying history, black history, and world history. He taught what he learned to other prisoners. Finally, Chucky Africa goes home, the last of the Move Nine. From Imprisoned Nation, this is Mumia Abu Jamal. These commentaries are recorded by Noel Hanrahan of Prison Radio. My name is Adilson T.R.U. Nev. I am 29 years old and been in prison since age 17 for the 2008 death of Mr. Edward Carley. I humbly extend my deepest condolences to his family, friends, and community. Restorative justice. Restorative justice is defined as a way to do justice that actively includes the people impacted by the crime, victims, offenders, their family, and communities. Whereas the criminal justice system views an offense as a crime against the state itself. Howard Zerher, a pioneer of restorative justice, stated in a July 20, 2000 article by Randy B. Haji, that the criminal justice system was ineffectively using punishment under the guise of accountability. When considering the felony murder rule and its application to a teenage offender, I am a live example of an ineffective use of punishment. Recent scientific development says a teenager's brain is not fully developed until age 25. A teenager is more likely to act on impulsivity than rationale and is less likely to consider the consequences and or collateral damages as a result. However, this does not negate the need for accountability. A felony murder. A felony murder is any loss of life during a felony, such as a robbery. If a teenager kills someone during an intended robbery, the felony murder rule is then applied as it would be to an adult. Even if there's overwhelming evidence to support the actual cause of death was accidental. A guilty finding mandates an automatic natural life sentence in the Commonwealth of Massachusetts. In my opinion, the recent scientific development affirms the application of the felony murder rule to a teenage offender as an injustice and points to a neat area of due process reform in the age of mass incarceration. Restorative justice asserts that true justice is not in the transfer of harm from the victim to the offender through systemic retribution, but rather addressing the harms and needs of everyone involved. Zerher defined accountability as understanding the harm you've caused and doing something to make it right. In 2015, I became a human rights activist and since have been an advocate on behalf of restorative justice working particularly with young men in the age range of 18 to 30, developing circle processes aimed at identifying childhood trauma and its contribution to our crime, facilitating sincere gang renunciation and organizing to reduce the perpetuation of violence and motivations for criminal activity, 
In 2016, the Young Men's Evolution was featured in a CNN-sponsored documentary titled American Jail by Oscar Award-winning film director Roger Ross Williams, airing in 2018. Restorative practices include community stakeholders from all fields and victims and survivors of both nonviolent and violent crimes. In 2017, I became a published songwriter creating music to uplift and inspire the masses. Pain I'm Happy is a song of healing that was co-written and performed by Kira Etienne. Pain I'm Happy is available on all music streaming platforms and is dedicated to all the survivors. If accountability is demonstrated in genuine strides, is there a need to allocate taxpayers' money to what is now an ineffective use of punishment? My name is Adilson T.R.U. Neves. Thank you for your time. These commentaries are recorded by Noel Hanrahan of Prison Radio. Violence and hypocrisy as American as apple pie. I was watching the House managers giving their closing arguments during the impeachment trial. I couldn't help but sit and wonder about how corrupt our political system in this country really is. It is clear President Trump tried to get the Ukrainian president to launch phony investigations against Joe Biden and his son in an effort to hurt Joe Biden's presidential campaign. Then on top of that, this clown of a president then obstructs Congress's lawful efforts to investigate his abuses of power and clear violation of the United States Constitution. But why does none of this even remotely surprise me? Because this is America. Despite all its rhetoric about democracy and freedom, this land is ruled by the dictatorship of demagogues, special interests, money, and hypocrisy. Let's take it back to what the United States government did to the Black Panther Party and to the black community in general in the 1960s, 70s, and 80s. In that time, black consciousness was on the rise. It was out of this that the Black Panthers were formed. Here we had a bunch of young black adults standing up to defend, protect, care for, and serve their community. But this was perceived as a threat to the white power structure that didn't want to see poor black people being independent outside the white capitalist world. So they launched COINTELPRO operations that eventually culminated into flooding black communities with guns and drugs, which led to the rise in the destructive nature of gangs across the country, beginning in Los Angeles and then in Chicago. But was anybody ever held accountable? This also reminds me of what is happening to Mumia Abu-Jamal, despite clear evidence that this elder brother was set up by racist Philadelphia Police Department, racist prosecutors, and a racist judge, he has languished in prison over 30 years, but has anybody ever been held accountable? This reminds me further of what happened 10 months ago in my own hometown of Albany, New York, where police officers were caught on tape savagely beating black men, one of whom is the maternal uncle of my own nephew, a man I grew up with. Despite being caught on tape, the police officers unit is defending the actions of these dirty cops. Why? This even reminds me of all the abuse and mistreatment of prisoners by correction officers that I witnessed almost daily behind these prison walls, like when a prisoner was killed last year or when corrections officers beat down a seven-year-old prisoner. But yet the correction officer union defended the actions of these corrupt prison guards. Violence and hypocrisy is as American as apple pie. The impeachment trial President Trump only underscores how fake and phony American democracy can really be. Here I stand in prison after 23 years for crimes in which nobody was hurt, harmed, or injured, but this guy can use the office of the United States president in ways that threaten the national security of our country just to help himself get reelected. He can get caught on tape making misogynistic and offensive comments about women genitalia and still get elected as our president. Does anybody think this guy, if he weren't so popular with the Republican base, that he wouldn't be in an orange jumpsuit by now? But that begs an even deeper question. Why is the Republican base back in this clown? Does not the American Union mean more to them than partisan politics? And what party affiliations do you think the racist FBI agents and police officers were who destroyed the Black Panther Party? 
What was the party affiliation of the police officers, prosecutors, and judge who are responsible for railroading Mumia Abu-Jamal? What is the party affiliation of those racist cops who beat on my nephew's maternal uncle? What is the party affiliation of the police officers and correction officer union members that defended corrupt and dirty cops who are caught red-handed on tape themselves violating the law? All this hits home to me because even now, the New York State Department of Corrections and Community Supervision is utilizing taxpayer dollars to stop my UFD organization from helping young prisoners change and better themselves. The department outright lied to justify their decision not to allow UFD official recognition and approval. And despite the evidence of this lie, I have federal judges who are purposely turning a blind eye to this. What's happening at the highest levels of government in this country with the corruption of President Trump is only reflective of what many of us at the lower end of the spectrum already know. Justice in this country goes to those who have the money and power to get away with the dirt that they do, especially law enforcement and correction officials, biased judges, and Donald Trump, the worst president in history. This is Dante S. Mitchell, better known as the Filemate Takibu, reporting to you from Great Metal Correction Facility in Comstock, New York. Follow me at Free Dante Mitchell on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Send me an email or videogram via jpay.com with your questions and comments. Thank you for listening, and God bless. These commentaries are recorded by Noel Hanrahan of Prison Radio. And that was a few commentaries by Prison Radio. Um from the US um, we'll just go to a, a song then a cart you're the only dream I want you're the only dream I have in the morning when I wake up I feel you in my
3CR is a community radio licence holder. What you hear on community radio is governed by the community radio codes of practice. The codes of practice cover matters relating to program content, including local content, news, current affairs, Australian music, programs for children and the responsibilities associated with broadcasting by and for the community. They also cover aspects such as community access and participation in the operation of this station. Copies of the code are available from the 3CR website. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash who we are. And you're with the Doing Time Show, 855am or www.3cr.org.au. Um, so we're going to go to another podcast. This is um, Life Life of a Lifer podcast and this one's about Bobby Bostick 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 um, a 41 year old man that was convinced, convicted at the age of 16 who served who was serving a 241 year sentence in Missouri he was given a sentence, a 41-year sentence by a judge, Evelyn Baker, making him eligible for parole when he was two, 120, uh, 112. Bobby is serving the longest sentence in Missouri given to a juvenile of non-homicidal homicide offences. Bosick case um, attracted considerable media attention in the years due to changes of laws regarding life sentences for children and severally for his sentence. Um, Judge Baker later stated she regretted giving Bobby the sentence and actively supported his appeal to the Supreme Court of the United States, along with Ken Starr, Sally Yates, Donald B. Verrilli Jr., and 100, over 100 and current and former judges, and prosecutors, and law enforcement officers in April 2018. The Supreme Court denied Bosek's appeal. He was incarcerated at Jefferson City Correctional Centre during the first year in his in the Department of Corrections. Bobby obtained his GED. Since then, he has obtained paralegal diploma. He has taken victim advocate courses through. Adam State College. He also completed a course on in non-profit management and grantsmanship. He was has established several blueprints of non-profit profit organisations for troubled teens and charities. Bobby has also writ- written five, 15 books. Nine of them are books on poverty and completed over 25 years of rehabilitation classes. So I'll just get to this um, Bobby's um, interview. You have a quick call from... There's nothing like waking up to the sound of clacking and buzzing as the doors crack in the morning after count clears. Waking up to the reality of life in prison. For some, it's just a stop along their journey, a milepost, an experience. For others, it is a revolving door, in and out in and out, and that's their way of life, stuck in the cycle. 
pulling and eating away at them. And then for some, it becomes their destination as the hammer came down and that judge issued them a death sentence. The slow way, by way of life in prison. This is the life of a writer by Taylor Conley. Hello, and welcome to another edition of Life of a Lifer. My name is Salty Candace. Today, we are talking with Bobby Bostich, a 41-year-old man that was convicted at the age of 16 who is serving a sentence of 241 years in Missouri. He was given a sentence of 241 years by Judge Evelyn Baker, making him eligible for parole when he is 112. Bobby is serving the longest sentence in Missouri given to a juvenile for a non-homicide offense. Bobby's case attracted considerable media attention in later years due to changing laws regarding life sentences for children and the severity of his sentences. Judge Baker later stated she regretted giving Bobby the sentence and actively supported his appeal to the Supreme Court of the United States, along with Ken Starr, Sally Yates, Donald B. Verrill, Jr., and over 100 current and former judges, prosecutors, and law enforcement officers. In April 2018, the Supreme Court denied Bostick's appeal. He is incarcerated at Jefferson City Correctional Center. During his first year in the Department of Corrections, Bobby obtained his GED. Since then, he has obtained a paralegal diploma and has taken victim's advocate course, courses through Adams State College. He has also completed a course in nonprofit management and grantship. He has established several, several blueprints for nonprofit organizations for troubled teens and charities. Bobby has also written 15 books. Nine of them are books of poetry and completed over 25 rehabilitation classes. Hello, Bobby. Thank you for joining us today. We are happy to have you here on Life of a Lifer. How are you doing? I'm doing okay. This doing is okay? Yep. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, I understand that you've written 15 books. Can you tell our listeners what they're about and why you wrote them? Uh, okay, one of them is called uh, Dear Mother. It's my mother life story. That's available on Amazon right now. And uh, other books, uh, two of them about prisoners and growing up in prison. And one of the other books is about the younger generation, why they turned out the way they did and why they think the way they do and why they rebelled against the world. And the other book is on memoir, and the last book is about living in the inner city in the ghetto. And the other nine books are poetry books. Wow, that is incredible. And I was telling, like I was telling y'all, one of them is about going out. That's the big mother book. That's my mother life story. Very cool. And that one's on Amazon. Okay. Yeah. Do you feel that writing has helped you cope with your sentence? Yes, and it helps me. It helps me also find meaning in this existence or meaning in my life. Period. The mistakes I made through writing. Uh, I use writing as a form of therapy, and it helps others. You know, to see through my mistakes and our mistakes in general. So writing has helped me cope a lot in it. Exactly. Can you share with us how it has been for you growing up in prison? Growing up in prison, I say it has been a hard experience. But I can also say that growing up in poverty kind of prepared me for these hardships because had I not gone through my rough childhood, I don't think I would have been able to deal with my prison sentence or existing prison 25 years I remember. So, but growing up in here has been hard, but also I look, I look at it as it's been a learning thing, and I learned my lesson in life, and I found my talents and gifts in prison. So I use it to the best of my ability. Right, right. Is there anything that our listeners can do to help with your case? Um, well, uh, technically, they, well, they can log on to uh, uh, free uh, Bobby Bostic and look on there and see if uh, 
anything they can do, they can look, to, look at freebodybossy.com and see if anything on there that will help, you know, help me to sign my petition on change.org. They can uh, get that link off the website. And that's it. They can just try to help uh, write letters of support to me, write me letters of support to other my attorneys, or just write me letters of support to keep me encouraged. Right, right. Definitely. Would you be able to read one of your poems for us? Oh, okay. Uh, well, I'll read one off the top of my head. This one here is called The Terrible Bullet. It's a poem that I wrote several, I wrote this probably like in 04, but it's relevant to what's going on today with, you know, the unnecessary mass shootings that we see on the news all the time. So this poem I'm reading now is called The Terrible Bullet by Bobby Bostick. Bullet, can I ask you a question? Why are you so terrible? In the wake of your onslaught, things turn horrible. See how you rip through bodies and kill so many dreams. There's a ripple from the trigger, seeing bloods flowing in streams. Made by man, but yet given the life of your own. You are not the solution because you break up many a happy home. People dealing with problems, thinking that you can solve them. Yet in the end, you become the greatest problem. Look at the damage that you do to the world, taking the lives of innocent boys and girls. Oh, Bullet, they say that you know no name, but yet in life you play such a deadly game. You have no eyes, so therefore you cannot see, blind to the fact that you are killing off humanity. I wonder if you knew your crimes, would you repent? And if so, would you claim that the deaths you caused wasn't meant? Will you just blame man and absolve yourself of guilt, wrapping your conscience up in an unmerciful quilt? Nothing but a piece of steel, yet your fatal consequences are so real. I must ask those to have emotions that feel, why has the bullet been given the power to kill? Not even knowing those whom it may slay, yet those precious lives will not live to see another day. Recently, I read about the child that was shot and killed. I guess they had to go because this is what heaven willed. You do not realize that the life you took was that of a kid, but yet you are so unsympathetic in what you did. Almighty Bullet, let me ask you another question, because every day your daily deeds be having me guessing. I wonder at your worth, but I can't still figure you out. Death and destruction is what you're all about. Look at how you tore through that woman's heart, ripping her whole family apart. Then you have these greedy businessmen that become a gun dealer. Them as well as the trigger man is the real killer. Look at the precious soul that you have forsaken. You have become a favorite tool of Satan. Iron is supposed to be a precious metal, but yet it is used for the wrong purposes by the devil. He destroys the souls that he possesses. Even the killer kills a part of themselves in the process. So, Bullet, who do you answer to? Is destruction the only way that you pay your due? All it takes is a pull of the trigger to unleash your theory. Setting down all the factors that make the bullets would be the best theory. Because a lifeless bullet can take on a life of its own. Once released into the earth, it is terror prone. A bullet travels at the speed of light. All it takes is one bullet to end the life. Causing grief and destroying so much. A lot of habit can be reaped from a bullet's touch. Man finds the trigger, and then he pulls it. Little does he realize the endless consequences of the terrible bullet. Bye, Bobby Boston. That is an amazing poem, and that was just off the top of your head. <laughs> yes. From memory. Wow. Yes. That's incredible. Very moving. It's just, it's just dedicated awesome. to all the senseless violence that's going on out there. And I got to, that's my gift. That's why I said no, writing is another gift. I can write almost anything from a deep emotional place. And it's just my gift, and I want to touch the world with that gift. I write to heal. I write to help people. And I write inspiration things so that people know whatever they're going through, they can get through. Because, you know, like going through my senses, I see the end of the light now. You know, like. There's a lot happening, like the judge who sentenced me just had a press conference up in the capital of Jeff City the other day, hiring a lot of legislators, saying they're going to change the law of the based on my case. So, so 
But I never saw that coming years ago, but I always believed that I was going to get out one day. So anybody in prison, or people that have loved ones in prison, please tell your family to keep hope because it's a way to get out of the worst situation. And we can make the best. We can turn tragedy into triumph. We can make the best out of bad things happening in life. Exactly. And exactly. my story is a, t- it's a testament to that. And, you know, anybody that's going through something, we just got to stay strong. Mm-hmm. And we can't change. People here make the worst mistakes. But I wrote another essay called Some of the World's Greatest Minds Are in Prison because we are here. It's just we made some of the worst mistakes. You know, made some of the smartest people do the dumbest things. And we end up inside these prisons. But we can turn this around if we just use our mind and become better people. And that's what people like me have done. And the people that you that you all promote through this through this uh, medium here, y'all promote prison that have changed their life. And that's what we trying to do, we trying to help other people to not be safe from Right. Right. Most definitely. Yeah. If you could sit a young person down and give them heart to heart advice if they were out there getting in trouble, what would you say to that young person to hopefully change their mind? Uh, the young person, I would tell them I, I call I got another I always go back to my rights. I, I wrote an essay called Advice I would give to my young self. I'm telling my young self that he needs to listen to his mother. He needs to listen to his parents. Because he always thinks that he knows what's best for him, but he does, you know, and it takes, it takes for you to really bump your head to see, but by then, sometimes it may be too late. And once you, once it's too late, there's no find no way out of it. Some things we can make mistakes and never come back from. So the young person I would tell him, please listen to people that are telling you what they're trying to tell you because they got your best heart, especially your family, your mother. They got your best advice for it. You may not think that, or you may think they don't know what they're talking about, but they do. And in reference mm-hmm. to, to me trying to give uh, young people guidance, right, uh, I have dedicated my life to use my story coming here at 16 to help young people change their life. And there's only so much I can do for prison, but from prison so far, I've uh, created an online platform for youngsters that maybe get in trouble or maybe headed towards trouble, I create the online platform for them, right? And mm-hmm. that plat that is called juvenile juvenile lifers without parole sheets dot org. Okay, and yeah, they just to help them to go on there and, you know, use my testimony and being a few other juvenile lifers is keeping them out of trouble. Like these are the twelve lessons that you usually get in trouble for. So I created twelve lessons on there. To tell them to stay out of trouble. So the mm-hmm. main twelve aspects that keep them in trouble is all on there with lessons and homework on that on that website that I created. Awesome. That is that's very cool. Oh yeah, when you see it you will really whoever see it, they they like it, it's drawings on there and it's anything that a youth can relate to. So they just only thing that's what I can do for until I can get out see them face to face or you know, things like that. I just wanna right. my story is the best month. Right. Bobby, I thank you for joining us today. We at Design Conviction appreciate you taking the time to tell us your story and for sharing your poetry with us. We applaud you for your accomplishments, and we look forward to following your story, and we wish you luck with your case. Okay. Thank you for taking the time to hear me, and I hope that my message is encouraging to anybody. All right. And uh, just to all, I appreciate everything that you're doing to help prisoners in general and to me in particular. Yeah. Keep on walking down the line. Keep on walking down And that was a podcast from lifeofalifer.com. If you wanted to check that out, it's www.lifeofalifer.com. And also, if you wanted to know about Bobby, um, there's some websites, Bobby, www.freebobbybostic.com. And the website he just um, spoke about before is Juveniles, Juvenile Lifers Without Parole Speaks, one word, um, .org. And um, we'll just go to an announcement now. 
The federal government has just announced plans for a radioactive waste dump in Kimba on Bangala country. BHPs is expanding the Olympic Dam uranium mine. Now is the time to join the radioactive resistance. Hit the road with Friends of the Earth Melbourne's Nuclear Free Collective as we travel to frontline communities and see how the nuclear industry impacts people. The Radioactive Exposure Tour will run from April 10 to 19 this year. More details on melbournefoe.org.au slash radtour2020 or contact us on radexposuretour at gmail.com. Bose Nuclear Free Campaign is a 3CR supporter. Yeah, I was watching um, the the women's football yesterday, um, ALFW, and um, the BHP support one of the teams, and some of the yeah in Tasmania. Um, I wish people would wish wish they'd boycott that the um, sponsor. Anyhow, we'll go to another announcement. Underneath the ground at the Olympic Dam mine, there is an old sleepy lizard. BHP is mining right into that lizard named Kulta, and it's not so sleepy anymore. The old frog's and lizard, I really know. Mining company, gotta go. The lizard returns protestable 2020. Uncle Kev is putting out the call. This is an invitation to all people and protectors of the land and waters to get involved in the creation of Autonomous Zone as we move for peace and justice. BYO, your own creative response to the nuclear industry and BHP's water theft. Keep an eye on the Lizard Revenge page on Facebook or check out our website for history and info and updates on the lizardbitesback.net. The Lizard Returns Protestable, the 3rd to the 6th of July, Arabana Country. See you there. A 3CR supporter. And it's um, goodbye from me. Um, next week we're going to have a good show. Um, We'll keep that a surprise, but um, I'm Pete, um, so see you later next week. I think Marissa's coming in too. Bye.